1: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. QAnon conspiracists, white nationalists, proud boy militants, business professionals— those are some of the perpetrators of the deadly pro-Trump insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last week that law enforcement officials have identified and begun to charge with federal crimes. In this hour, what we know about the insurrectionists, what they were planning, and why, investigators say, the violence could have been even worse. And we'll look at some of the raid's historical antecedents and its racist roots. That's next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Over the weekend, as more video footage and first-person accounts emerged from Wednesday's attack on the Capitol, two things became clearer. It was more violent than first thought, and, investigators say, could have been far worse. There's video of an officer in pain, pinned between the door and the mob, of another dragged and beaten, people hunting for lawmakers and shouting for blood. Five people are dead. Another officer died by suicide after responding to the attack, In this hour, we learn more about what the insurrectionists were planning, what's being done to protect future events, and we look at the larger racist truths the incident exposes about America. Joining me first, Matthew Rosenberg, national security reporter for The New York Times. Thanks so much for being on Forum, Matthew Rosenberg.
0: Thanks
3: for having me.
1: You know, we're learning about people carrying long guns and Molotov cocktails and fire extinguishers, which of course, was what the Capitol police officer who died, Brian Sicknick, was struck with. And and there's this very chilling description in your New York Times piece of a man moving through the Senate chamber in paramilitary regalia, camouflage uniform, Kevlar vest, mask, that kind of thing, and carrying a stack, a stack of flex cuffs. These are those plastic restraints that are used by police and, quote, The image raised a question yet to be answered. Why carry restraints if not to use them? I mean, is that the question you had, Matthew Rosenberg, and how how do you answer it?
3: I I mean, part of that is watching the investigations unfold here. I I think, you know, as we're getting a better and better picture of this, we're seeing a pretty broad array of people who, 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 who managed to penetrate the Capitol building. You know, there was a great mass of people who were basically... You know, a mob, um, rioters, people who probably thought of this the way they thought of trash in their local high school. They were certainly there. But with them were also people who seemed to have engaged in some real planning and come equipped, like the guy with the flex cause potentially, um, to either kidnap or do other kinds of harm to members of Congress to kind of enact their fantasy of overthrowing the U.S. government or, or protecting the Constitution from these people, you know, um, and that you do have a range of characters and a range of groups that go from, like, you know, the very hardcore militia groups to um, people who probably didn't get a lot of thought of this while they were bursting in.
1: A lot of this was described in sort of online chatter before the attack. How to carry it out. Can you describe what was being shared and why, if so public, there really wasn't a lot of warning or opportunity, it seems like, or or coordination in terms of trying to address it.
3: You know, a, a lot of this talk uh, has often been hiding in plain sight. Um, there are sites like the Donald Win is one of them, and other places where people congregate and they discuss what they want to do. Um, on on this site called the Donald Win, for instance, you know, people were talking about what weapons to bring, how to get them into the uh, the rally the president was holding on the ellipse, how not to get caught by the police. People were sharing maps of Congress and talking about, you know, we have to march on Congress. We have to. Stop Congress from 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 doing a certification. You know, I, I do think there is it, it is it can be hard, especially I know for journalists to to write about violence when discussing the hypothetical. Um, until somebody acts, you know, there's always a lot of talk. However, this talk was pretty detailed. Um, it, it's clear that there was a, a dramatic law enforcement law enforcement failure here that people simply either did not take this seriously or thought, well, maybe these guys are on our side. as the Blue Lives Matter crowd. So what do we have to worry about from them? Um, but there was an utter lack of coordination, lack of preparation. And you could see that in, in Congress, you know, where the Capitol Police were overwhelmed. There are video and images of them fleeing. You know, I know in one instance, I was kind of just outside the building and talking to people as they were coming out. I interviewed one guy who immediately confessed to... Breaking into police's office on video, um, and and I've seen a reaction to that online. It's been why wasn't he arrested right there? You know, how did he? How was he allowed to walk away? There was no way to arrest that guy. This was a middle of a riot. There were no police anywhere in sight. If they had been anywhere in sight and tried to arrest him, they would probably would have been beat to death. Um, you know, they were totally unprepared and did not have the numbers needed to resist this kind of mob or this kind of riot, this kind of attempt to break into the Capitol when it happened.
1: So the inability you're saying, but in part, of course, because there wasn't that coordinated response. You know, there are so many questions about this in terms of, like, who knew what when as this was unfolding and did not respond? Like, who was constructing the response in real time? And I'm wondering, A, if you have any more information about that, and also the questions that you are exploring as well, The, the real head scratchers for you.
3: I mean, I think, you know, we're starting to get a, a better idea of who knew what, when, of, of failures to kind of repair ahead of time by by the city, by the Capitol Police, by others. There was, does seem to have been a, an hour or two hour gap in between when National Guard were requested and when they were kind of dispatched. Um, and I think there's been a lot of talk that that holdup was in the White House itself, that unlike um, regular states where the governor controls the National Guard in D.C., is designed by the federal government, the president controls the National Guard. And so it would have been up to the president to dispatch it. Um, you know, I think the head scratchers head for us going forward are, you know, how much of this was, was pre-planned and organized and how much of this was spontaneous. And um, I suspect that truth lies somewhere in between those two kind of polls, um, there were also, you know, there were rallies organized around this. On Tuesday, there was a rally held in Freedom Plaza, another part of D.C., um, That featured a a range of speakers from from fairly um, right wing evangelical speakers to Alex Jones and Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, Roger Stone, and other kind of bold faced Trump world names. You know, that rally was filled with talk of needing to stop Congress to fight. We're in a war, a lot of war talk. It attracted maybe at most 2,000 people. But, you know, these events all need to be paid for. Who was paying for this? Um, That's a huge question for us going forward. And what connection, if there is any, between the people who have paid for these various events and people who storm the Capitol? Was there any? We don't know yet.
1: Now there is a lot of reporting about, you know, the inauguration, potential attacks Mm -hmm. there, attacks on state houses. We just learned today that uh, Washington Monument is closed until January 24th with The National Park Service saying there are credible threats to visitors and park resources and then specifically groups involved in the Wednesday riots at the Capitol continue to threaten to disrupt the inauguration. I mean, what are you seeing right now in terms of these, you know, in plain sight plans and um, and, you know, even not just for the inauguration, but but potentially even things that we're hearing about. This Saturday, there have been some, there's been some chatter about wanting to repeat some of the activities, maybe even at state houses.
3: Yeah, there's there's talk kind of in various online forums that that talk of protests in D.C. in the 20th or in the few days beforehand that talk about state houses. Um, and, you know, it's going on a variety of websites. I guess one of the side effects of, of the president and a number of, of far right people being pushed off Twitter is so it kind of pushes this stuff a little further away from the mainstream which, you know, obviously has the positive effect of, of making it harder to spread, but also makes it a little bit harder to find. But it's there. Um, forums like 4chan, which is um, uh, filled with kind of right-wing trolls, parts of it. Um, there's been a lot of talk on Parler, which was a Twitter rival created by, um, by some right-wing characters that was shut down last night. Um, mm-hmm. There was a lot of talk of this. Then there are other sites like Militia.me, which is a site for a variety of militias, a number of which were here and involved in the riot on Wednesday are talking about how to move forward and what to do next. The Oath Keepers, the three percenters, you know, there, there are a variety of them. And so one thing, though, is a lot of these conversations are moving into private forums, hmm. either on social media networks or on forums they wrote themselves, because I think, it, you know, it, you don't have to be a, a brain surgeon to figure out that and then maybe we shouldn't plan this stuff in public while we're talking about committing federal crimes. Um, and I think they, they, they've got that message now.
1: Um, but are you saying that that will make it harder to try to address them or prepare for them?
3: I mean, potentially, yes. I, I think enough of this is public right now, but I do suspect given, and, and this is at this point, I, I can't say this with, with, with complete confidence, but given, given how public everything is now, that if 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 there was a serious kind of attempt to really conduct, um, commit violence um, anywhere around the inauguration, that this would not be planned in public online. Um, at least I imagine it wouldn't, but who knows?
1: And I mean, you're a national security reporter. Do you think are you worried about our security? Do you think we can handle it, especially after Wednesday? A lot of people have their doubts.
3: Um, I would certainly, I certainly share them. Um, I do. We, we have heard. I mean, look, it, the number of agencies that were supposed to take care of security were humiliated in this. And um, that tends to be a pretty good motivator to not allow a repeat. And I know at the FBI, for instance, they are working around the clock to try and arrest people who are in the Capitol. Um, but, you know, given the complete failure on Wednesday to prepare for something that, that anybody who was looking could have seen was, was, was a possibility um, that there was going to be violence, you do have to wonder, are we ready for, for, for the inauguration and will it be safe?
1: Before I let you go, Matthew Rosenberg, I was struck by your pieces that were really highlighting the overt racism and bigotry of many in the mob. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Um. So, yeah, you know, this kind of movement, I guess, for lack of a better term, brings together a, a wide range of people from the believers in QAnon, the kind of pro-Trump conspiracy theory, to very hardcore white supremacists. You know, there was one image that emerged of a guy wearing a T-shirt that said Camp Auschwitz. And then, um, you know, um, he's now we we managed to identify him yesterday. There were people shouting racial epitaphs at, at, at black police officers who were there you know, you could walk through the crowd and just hear people using um, using nasty words just in casual conversation. Um, I definitely, you know, encountered some people when I said my last name was Rosenberg. A few questions about whether it's Jewish or not. And I kind of backed off there. Um, and I think that, you know, there is a, a sizable part of this movement not all of it, but some of it that is that is deeply racist, and, um, and, and dominated by white
1: supremacists. Well, Matthew Rosenberg, thank you for the risk you take for trying to get this information to us. Matthew Rosenberg, national security reporter for The New York Times, really appreciate having you on. Thank you. We're talking about what we've learned since Wednesday's deadly capital siege, about the identities and affiliations of the pro-Trump insurrectionists and what they were seeking. And I invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. How are you digesting new information that's emerging about Wednesday's deadly insurrection? And did the attack take you by surprise or Did you see it as an expected or even inevitable result of the last four years under President Trump? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're joined now by Bay Area Representative Zoe Lofgren, who also chairs the committee that oversees Capitol Police. Congresswoman Lofgren, thank you so much for talking with us.
4: Uh, good to be on. How are you, Mina?
1: I, I'm well, and we're, we're so glad that you are okay after this, but, but do tell us a little bit more about what you experienced Wednesday and, and also witnessed in terms of police response.
4: Well, I I'm, was one of the foretellers uh, overseeing and you know reading the uh, electoral counts, and uh, I was also part of a four-person team organizing the Democratic response to the baseless efforts to overturn those results. So I was in the floor. I was the first person uh, on the Democratic side to speak in opposition to throwing out Arizona's votes. And... Um, You know, a lot of the Republican members refuse to wear masks, even though the rules require it. So I try and stay as far away from them as possible. Mm -hmm. After I uh, spoke, I went into the cloakroom, Democratic cloakroom. I was the only person in there, so I didn't have to breathe their air. And uh, not only could I see through C-SPAN the uh, proceedings on the floor, but there are multiple TV sets in the cloakroom, and I also turned on. Uh, news channel, and I could see that we had a very serious situation evolving uh, at the Capitol and that it appeared that the Capitol uh, defenses were being overrun. You know, the members who were on the floor speaking were unaware of that. I went out and talked to a a few people, but it was very shortly after that that I saw uh, Nancy Pelosi, who was presiding over the House was whisked away by her security team. And that's about line of succession. That's not about security for the House. She is right behind Mike Pence to become president if there's vacancies. And I knew that we were in big trouble then. Um,
1: Yes, and you you mentioned overrun. And while there were heroic efforts, uh, there were also questions right now where people are wondering if the lack of effectiveness In some cases bordered on complicity by some officers like videos that appear to show officers posing for selfies or or opening doors or or opening barricades. What have you learned about this?
4: Well that's a big concern and there has to be uh, a complete uh, review uh, of the reliability of all of the officers clearly. There were officers who, at great risk to themselves, in fact, one officer was murdered, uh, tried to protect the Capitol and all of the people within. I saw the same things you have just mentioned on social media of a few other officers taking what appeared to be a very friendly approach. So uh, those officers need to be removed. I will say that some of them already have been, um, and we need to figure out who can be relied on and who can't within the department obviously this is a complete failure of uh of leadership in the department uh, the, uh, the officers who were there uh, had not apparently uh, <laughs> been provided direction or even the tools to repel this mob so it's the chief uh, has resigned the sergeant-at-arms of both the house and senate have resigned they're acting Uh, sergeants and acting chiefs but uh, we need a complete analysis of what happened here so that uh, this never happens again.
1: Speaking of complete analysis I mean do you do you have any more information about what requests were made of the National Guard and why they weren't at the ready? I don't
4: know I mean I was briefed you know it's it's a weird situation we have because I have no control over the Capitol Police. They are governed by the Capitol Police Board made up of the two Sergeant of arms and the architect of the Capitol. So, you know, I can have a hearing about what's going on, but I have no authority over them any more than the speaker does, which is a ridiculous situation. Um, I was nevertheless briefed. I asked to be briefed by uh, the police chief and the sergeant at arms for the House prior to the 6th. And I was told that the guard was all ready to go, um, and that uh, they—I was assured that they were prepared, they were ready to handle anything—and it just—that's completely false. So, uh, we need to find out a lot more than we currently know. I don't think—I—I I, I don't want to speculate, but sure. what I was told was not accurate, and we need to get to the bottom of it.
1: It sounds like you're worried that you were misled.
4: You bet. Hmm.
1: So that there was some intention behind that?
4: Whether it was massive incompetence, whether it was collusion, you know, I'm not in a position to say, but we need to find that out.
1: The House is moving forward today with a resolution calling on Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment in 24 hours. If he doesn't, Speaker Pelosi says the House will bring an impeachment case. Representative Lovkin, I know you argued uh, the first impeachment case against the president. I, I mean, can you talk about the gravity of that decision and, and some concern among Democrats about it overtaking Biden's attempts to get things, President-elect Joe Biden's attempts to get things done in his first 100 days?
4: Well, I, um, I wish that Pres- Vice President Pence would act. I think President Trump has given us uh, every indication to worry about what, he might do next, uh, that would endanger the United States. And um, the vice president should act. If he won't, I think we need to act. And uh, then it's up to the Senate. You know, Mitch McConnell could walk into the Senate today and get unanimous consent to proceed. So, uh, you know, I I can't account for his unwillingness to act. Um, but Action, I think, to preserve the security of the United States is required.
1: Well, a listener writes, I want to say thank you to lawmakers, mostly Democrats, and Mitt Romney, who showed the courage to stand up to this right-wing anti-democracy bullying for the last four years and longer. I'm grateful for Republicans, like the Republican Georgia Secretary of State who showed the kind of moral fiber so frighteningly absent from Republicans in recent years. I'm grateful to the over 80 million voters who voted for Biden. Um, John asks, are all crimes committed in the District of Columbia, including burglary or assault, federal crimes and thus subject to federal crimes and thus subject to presidential pardon? Do you have an answer for John?
4: Yes, they are.
1: They are. They are subject to presidential pardon. And, and if it's okay with you, I'd just like to take one call from, from Michael in Oakland. Hi, Michael. Join us. Good
5: morning. Um, so, in, in terms of the failure here and the contrast with during the Black Lives Matter uh, protests at the Capitol and elsewhere, there's really important context reporting by NPR's Greg Myrie that seems to be systematically ignored. Um, ahead of the riot it happened, uh, Miro Bowser, the mayor of Washington, D.C., announced that the Metropolitan Police Department was going to be the lead agency on all law enforcement and would coordinate and direct the federal law enforcement efforts, and that she had mobilized the National Guard troops to be unarmed and to not be at the Capitol, to instead be Directing traffic and keeping things orderly on the subway and so forth and, you know, conducting sort of orderly activities, but definitely standing down and standing away from the capital. So, you know, I, I don't think we want to judge it with 2020 uh, hindsight too much. But in terms of why there was no one there and they weren't prepared and so forth, they were actually actively being ordered to stand down precisely in order to avoid the kind of overly aggressive law enforcement action we saw during the BLM protest. And again, this is NPR's Greg Myrie. You can find it on their website.
1: Any insight, to Representative Lofgren, into what Michael is saying? Well, you know, I think,
4: um, you know, I'm not sure all the, what the, of what the mayor has done, but the Capitol Police have jurisdiction over the U.S. Capitol, not the Metropolitan Police. And so really the posture is, the Capitol Police are lead. They can call in, and I was told they had previously gotten this all organized, uh, back up by the Metropolitan Police, the Guard, other federal law enforcement agencies. Um, you know, the, the mayor of D.C., uh, can't dispatch the National Guard into the Capitol itself, only the city that surrounds the Capitol. Uh, this was, um, you know, as I was watching, the rioters, I couldn't help but think of the times that peaceful protesters who were um, a more diverse crowd, let me say, were uh, responded to with tremendous force and in some cases, you know, violent force by law enforcement. And here we had insurrectionists, you know, five people died and yet there was no tear gas, there were no rubber bullets, There was, I mean, it was really a con, I was enraged watching it, I'll tell you. Um, So we, things need to change here, and I'm going to do the best I can to make sure that they do.
1: And, And leave us with telling us what is being done to secure the safety of state and federal lawmakers like yourself, others who are targeted, continue to be targeted, as we are hearing more discussion of possible, more discussion of violence to come.
4: Well, I don't want to go into, not that I know all of it, but, um, you know, you don't want to disclose uh, tactical details publicly sure. because it would give the Proud Boys insight that would not be useful. Um, but certainly we, the efforts uh, to secure um, the capital itself have been massively increased, and um, efforts to uh, protect... Legislators have also been increased. Whether they're sufficient in terms of member protection yet is an ongoing point of discussion, Um, but certainly uh, we are in a very different posture than we were at the beginning of January 6th.
1: Yes, and my guess is public access just going forward will forever be affected as well, or not forever. Well, right now, the only
4: individuals permitted into the Capitol are uh, members of Congress and staff of members of Congress with identification.
1: Well, representative Lofgren, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. And again, glad you are are safe and hope you, you can feel safe again.
4: Thank you very much. We've got to stand up to this mob and this, uh, this effort to overturn our government and save our democracy.
1: Zoe Lofgren, U.S. Congresswoman representing California's 19th Congressional District in the South Bay of the Bay Area, which includes San Jose, Morgan Hill, and Gilroy. She's also a member of the House Judiciary Committee and chair of the Committee on House Administration, which oversees capital security. Joining me now is Adam Serwer, a staff writer for The Atlantic. His recent piece is called The Capitol Riot Was an Attack on Multiracial Democracy. Adam Serwer, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: There is so much to process related to Wednesday. And one of the things that that you highlighted in your recent piece is how this attack was fueled by long held and, and deep seated beliefs about who should get to decide who runs the government. Can you talk a little bit about how that really jumped out at you as the events unfolded Wednesday?
6: Um, well, look. I mean, the history of the United States is that it, you know, it, it 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 there are two competing intellectual traditions. One is that uh, it, it is this idea that uh, you know the fate of the government rests uh, in the hands of people who are are white and Christian, and the other is that uh, this is a country where we're all created equal and anybody can be an American. Um, and historically, when one party is made up Uh, almost exclusively of white people, and another party is multiracial. Uh, The white party does not accept the legitimacy of the victories of the multiracial party. And this was true, uh, you know, during Reconstruction, and and, and in its aftermath, when the Republican Party was the multiracial party, and the Democrats were the white party. Uh, And it's true now, as you saw, uh, you know, with Donald Trump saying, you know, we can't allow Philadelphia and Detroit Uh, or or milwaukee or atlanta to decide the election i mean this is and explicitly asking courts to throw out black votes this is a belief fundamental belief that rooted in a fundamental belief that you know there's a group of people who get to decide uh you know the fate of the country no matter what um and anything that is a challenge to that is simply illegitimate and does not count
1: and your point about you know, how long we really have had an attempt at multiracial democracy also struck me that, you know, while people are talking about how this capital attack really was an attack on our more than 200 year old democracy. What, what you were saying was, really, we should consider how how recent this attempt at multiracial democracy is related to to the Voting Rights Act. Can you talk about that?
6: Right. So, you know, after the Civil War, there was a brief attempt uh, at multiracial democracy in the South uh, called Reconstruction. And that experiment ended, uh, you know, in scenes that were far bloodier, but similar to what we saw in the Capitol uh, on, on, on Wednesday, which was people who do not recognize um, the legitimacy of the rival political coalition to govern. Um, and they overthrew the Reconstruction governments and they imposed one party rule in the South until 1965, uh, when the uh, Voting Rights Act guaranteed the right to vote, at least on paper uh, to people regardless uh, of of race. Um, and so you know, what that says is that America has struggled mightily with the ideals of the Declaration of, of Independence for a long time. And we haven't really been we, we weren't really living those ideals and really living in a multiracial democracy until uh, you know black Americans really had the right to vote. I mean my my mother was born into uh, Florida. Her parents could not vote. That was the way that um, Florida was at the time. And most of America was perfectly fine with that. So when we look at these things that are happening, these are, uh, you know, the resurrection of historical demons that have been a part of our history for a long time uh, that have basically been whitewashed out of our historical education. And so they have no representation in our popular memory, which is why it came as such a shock um, that uh, this unfolded the way that it did to so many people.
1: Let me go to caller Ariane in San Francisco. Hi, Ariane.
2: Thank you so much for taking my
1: call. And we can see how this is opening up the thought
2: process and the learning curve for everyone to be speaking so openly about these issues. I just want to say that it's not enough to think that we could shame these people um, into abiding by the law. We need to understand them psychologically. I'm a clinical psychologist and the, the white nationalists consider themselves as victims. Um, it's hard to believe that because they have the white privilege, but they, they basically are holding on to their white privilege because they have very little else living in the rural places of America that are really um, dispossessed ec- economically. Um, and we need to understand that their world is coming to an end. And that means they feel that they're unraveling their internal world, their psyche, their sense of identity is coming apart. That's why they are so dangerous. And when they enact the violence that they do, they're showing us in 3D on the big screen what that looks like to have a mental breakdown, including our president. The last thing I want to say is that we have to look at um, not only um, thinking about our educational system, but thinking about the role of video gaming and how people act out their fantasies and that's not just thought and feeling and fantasy it gets acted out in public and domestic violence in deep depression in pornography and all these well, things and all Ar- right yes media- arian and-
1: we're coming up on a break and i did just want to give adam serwer a chance to respond to your your take on this adam serwer
6: well, look, in one sense, it's true that these people do not imagine themselves as attacking democracy when they were trying to overthrow the results of a presidential election. In their view, democracy is so has been so corrupted by the involvement of this rival political coalition that it, it, the, the results are simply not legitimate. And that is the, the those were the same beliefs that the men who overthrew the government in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, they believed the same thing. They didn't think they were harming democracy. They thought that they were protecting. Democracy, But I want to push back on the idea that this is, a, you know, a, an outgrowth of economic deprivation. There were plenty of people in there who were well off. They were lawyers, they were owned businesses, uh, they came down on private jets. Um, you know, the idea that this is the result of economic deprivation is simply not correct.
1: There's also some question to an investigation as we were hearing from Matthew Rosenberg about how and who may have funded this. Adam Serwer is a staff writer for The Atlantic. We'll have more with him after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. We're talking with Adam Server, staff writer at The Atlantic. His recent piece is called The Capitol Riot Was an Attack on Multiracial Democracy. We're talking about what we've learned since Wednesday's deadly Capitol siege about the identities and affiliations of the insurrectionists and, and what they were seeking and Talking about what the attack says about the state of our democracy at the end of Trump's term. You, our listeners, are with us, and you can join the conversation. How are you digesting new information that is coming out, will continue to emerge as well, but a lot of new information that came out over the weekend about Wednesday's deadly insurrection, and also just how are you processing whether it took you by surprise what parts of it? took you by surprise. Did you see it as unexpected or did you see it as inevitable based on these last four years of Trump? Um, You can join the conversation calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, emailing questions to forum at kqed.org. Also, you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And Alana tweets, I'm only surprised this attack or something similar didn't happen sooner. I'm also disgusted with pet- perpetual false equivalents and bringing up last year's protests against police brutality. And let me go to Christina in San Francisco. Hi, Christina.
8: Hi. Thank you for, my, for letting me speak. In 2000, uh, 2016, I was standing in the hate, and I saw pamphlets or those little sticker things for the Klan recruiting in the hate, uh, in 2017, the Trump administration cut funding to law enforcement tracking hate groups. 2017 also, the Klan established a chapter here in San Francisco. So I am really surprised, and I'm I was really surprised when I talked to people about this, and this includes Black and Brown people. I'm Mexican American. They didn't think that this was that big a deal. They thought, oh, this? are you afraid that this will happen? And I'm thinking you should be, you know, and I've had epithets thrown at me. Normally, I'm usually, I suffer discrimination mostly because I'm a female. But the last four years, people seem to think I'm an undocumented worker. And I'll tell you, it's been very relative. I'm glad that they directed it at me. Because I can defend myself, but, but it's just been unreal. Well, so I, I'll let you. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I just want to thank you for sharing there, that story. I know, even though you you are able to defend yourself, how how difficult and traumatic it can be to have epithets. Um, it's
8: toxic.
1: Draw, I mean, it,
8: and I'll, I'll tell you, there are times when you think, "Oh, it's just words." No, it's not, because they escalate when people when people feel they need to win something they escalate it
1: and thank you, Christina. Let me read Rubens' comment here. Rubens writes, The day after the 2016 presidential election, I predicted these despicable and hideous acts would take place. This insurrection and attempted coup was four years in the making, and no one should have been surprised by it. The entire purpose of electing Trump was to destabilize our federal institutions, erode our democracy, and weaken our country. Adam Sower, I am struck by your description of President Trump in terms of somebody who who, you know, brings things to the fore that frequently predate him and encourages things that he may not fully understand, but effectively foments. How do you reach that conclusion?
6: Um, I I reached that conclusion from the fact that the president by all accounts does not actually read books. So it's not really possible that he's aware of the historical uh, currents that he's toying with. Um, but you know, there's nothing that he is drawing on in terms of the you know, dark forces in American history that is completely new. Um, and, and that was the purpose of my piece, uh, you know, drawing on the coup in Wilmington in 1898, is to say that these ideas about who should be allowed to govern and, and, and wh- who, who can legitimately govern are very old. They're, they're, they're a fight that we, they're part of a battle that we as Americans have been uh, struggling with you know, since the founding. Um, and, And what's unique about President Trump is he is completely indifferent to the consequences of, of manipulating these forces for his own benefit. I mean, he, you know, he he told these people to, to go to the Capitol and fight and to, you know to overturn uh, the presidential election, and he said he was going to go with them, and then he went home and watched it on TV, um, because he he's utterly indifferent to the consequences of his own actions to the extent that they harm another person as long as he gets what he wants.
1: The other aspect of this, when you describe him retreating to the White House to watch the inve- to to watch the events unfold on television is that you write, Trump delights in violence as a flattering tribute to his own greatness. Um, such a, you know, such a chilling sort of description because it evokes the kind of, of leaders that, that he has said he admires so much.
6: Well, I mean, you can look at his response to the insurrection, which was, we love you, you're very special. Um, that's what he said to the people who stormed the Capitol building to overturn election and beat a police officer to death. And he said that, um, you know, he said something similar, uh, about, uh, two, uh, men in Boston who, who beat a Latino homeless man who, you know, uh, were, were acted out out of their support for Trump. When he was asked about that, he said, well, my supporters are very passionate. He is flattered that people are engaging in this kind of conduct on his behalf. He, um, you know, he thinks that it just shows how awesome he is. Uh, And that's extraordinarily dangerous because it's a feedback loop that encourages further political violence.
1: Charles tweets, the extremist militias warned for months that there would be a civil war if Biden were elected. Representative Lauren Boebert tweeted Pelosi's location during the siege. Why don't Republicans denounce Boebert and demand Trump resign? Are we now in greater danger of civil war? You know, this is a question that's been posed throughout. And a lot of times, um, you know, journalists, but also just generally, it it sort of resisted. People have resisted giving that too much um, room to, to really think about and consider. But how do you feel now?
6: I, I don't think that we're headed for anything resembling, uh, like the the actual civil war. The fact is, is that uh, you know most Americans just want to live their lives, go to work, uh, uh, spend time with their family and friends. Uh, you know, the, the civil war was the result of, um, you know, two like almost two separate economies that, that, that existed in a swath of contiguous territory. I mean, like there's more in common between Atlanta and New York city, uh, and more in common between rural New York and rural Georgia, um, than there is, than there are differences between those places. We're not headed for some sort of like, I, I don't believe that we're headed for some sort of breakdown in that sense. Why where that's not comforting is that there are plenty of forms of, um, Domestic violence that are destabilizing and harmful that don't quite reach that level uh, that can be extremely bad, uh, and 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 we have examples of that from all across the world. I, I wouldn't begin to predict what exactly, um, you know, the consequences, the the long term consequences of of the ride on the capital going to be. The only thing I can say is that if people are not punished for their role in that. Um, then other people are going to try to do the same thing elsewhere. It's going to encourage uh, further political violence.
1: What do you think of impeachment? I mean, do you think it can create the kind of lasting change needed to significantly weaken Trumpism, for example?
6: Look, I I don't know, but all I know is that a sitting president incited a a, a violent attack on another branch of government with the express purpose of preventing a peaceful transition of power. Um, If that's not impeachable, nothing is. I don't know if they'll be able to do it. Um, I know that there there really was no other choice, Um, not just because removing the president is now, you know, a question of national security, but because, uh, you you know, any future presidents uh, must be, you know, anybody with similar ambitions must be deterred from, from from pursuing such a course of action with the knowledge that Congress will remove them if they do so. And if they are unsuccessful, uh, you know, they're, they're put, again, The the lesson of Wilmington, was that uh, the United States government would no longer intervene to protect the rights of black people or defend democracy in the South. If there are no consequences for this, the lesson for those who want to violently overthrow the government is going to be that they can probably get away with it.
1: We're talking with you, our listeners, about how you are processing, digesting information as it comes out about Wednesday's deadly insurrection. And uh, Diane writes, people are not talking enough about the very basis of all of this insurrection, which is racism. It's so obvious that President Trump is a racist and has been from day one. He's just gotten more bold and more obvious about it as time goes on. Others of you are asking questions. Dan asks, how could we separate the, rationale, the rational and legitimate conservatives who will follow the rule of law from the violent extremists? Do our federal and state governments have the military capability to control the aggressive militia groups? This listener is wondering, this wake-up call could save our national unity and help us recover, but Fox & Friends has always been the misinformation partisan voice behind the divisive throne, and they continue even now. Who is holding Murdoch and company accountable for their relentless cult cultivation that continues today. I don't know if you have any comment on those things that that our listeners are are grappling with right now, Adam Serwer.
6: I mean, look, I I think that, uh, you know, as I've said earlier, and as I argued in my piece, I think that race is absolutely at the core of this. I think race has been at the core of the appeal of Trumpism from the beginning. uh, And I I don't think that uh, has changed with the president's marginal gains among some voters of color uh, in, in the last election. Um, you know, th- this is rooted in a belief, uh, that the other side, um, simply should not be able to govern and they focus their critiques, their focus, their demands that votes be thrown out on, uh, mostly black jurisdictions and all of the swing States. That's simply not a coincidence. Um, as far as the federal government's ability to handle this, um, I'm honestly, it, it, I think that it's very clear that, uh, the, that the authorities underestimated the potential for violence and underestimated um, how dangerous um, the uh, increase uh, in support for wh- white supremacist groups would be under this administration. Um, I am honest. I, I mean, it's hard to say. I think that the government has the authorities that it needs to prevent further terrorism and further violence from these factions, I am far more concerned about the spread of the ideology that we're discussing right here, which is that only one group of people should be allowed to govern the United States of America, no matter the circumstances, no matter who wins more votes. Uh, it, it, that is, to me, much more dangerous in the long term.
1: And again, Adam Serwer, a staff writer at The Atlantic. His piece, The Capitol Riot, was an attack on multiracial democracy. You're listening to Forum. I'm a Kim. Sam in Santa Barbara join us. Hi Sam. Hi. What's on your mind?
9: Hello. I'm uh, concerned about the uh prevalence of the uh Republican party in uh enabling Trump to do all this. I'm going to read a short statement about uh, what George Washington said uh he feared greatly the disorders and miseries which the result and in gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual. And sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purpose of of his own elevation and on the ruins of public liberty. And this explains the rise of uh, someone like Donald Trump and his his enablement by the Republican Party, who I hold... uh, And this is not everyone in the Republican Party, of course, but it was the Republican Party and the people that enabled him to rise to this prominent position and subvert the very uh, foundations of our democracy. And I'll take any reply uh, off on the air. Thank you.
1: Yes, Sam. Well, thank you. Uh, Adam Serwer, I mean, how are you how are you taking in? some of the fracturing that we're seeing in the Republican Party um, and the Republican enabling that has gone on for so long?
6: Um, I think the issue is that for most Republicans, the political incentives to stand by Trump, even in the aftermath of this, are so tremendously strong because Trump's base um, is so supportive of him and so Um, supportive of the idea that only the Republican Party should be allowed to govern and that anything, and you can see it in sort of the catastrophizing uh, rhetoric that you're hearing from uh, Trump supporters in the aftermath of this, that, you know, with Democrats taking the Senate, you know, this is is the end of democracy, it's communism, all this stuff, all this stuff is meant to justify um, further extremism, whether it's refusing to certify um, Joe Biden's electoral victory, uh, or justifying the assault on the Capitol. Um, uh, in, until that changes, until the incentives change for Republicans, um, you know, for, to, to until they're, as they are no longer reliant on this hardcore base that cannot allow itself to see error in anything Trump does, um, you know, they're going to continue behaving the way that they're behaving. And I'm not really sure how to fix the problem um, because they are, you know, a substantial part of that base simply does not trust the mainstream media, and they are locked in a hermetically sealed um, uh, media bubble in which everything that President Trump does is justified, and all of his flaws are minimized, and anything catastrophic that happens is someone else's fault. I I genuinely do not know how you solve this problem.
1: Yes, and I mean, there's also great contempt for government itself. I I mean, just a cynicism about what government is.
6: I mean, I think that in some ways, what these people are looking to government to do is something that government cannot do, which is to make them feel um, less as though their their sort of way of life is under cultural threat. Um, I think that's something that Trump appealed to all the time. It's why he, you know, he went. After uh, the sixteen nineteen project, for example, something that you know does not affect people's ability to live their lives or make a living or where their kids go to school, uh, you know, th- these are things that he 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 has succeeded by telling his audience that he's the only thing standing between them and Armageddon. But the U.S. government cannot actually prevent, um, you know, uh, the the fact that. Uh, public opinion has swung towards uh, same-sex marriage rights or the fact that, uh, you know, programs on television are more diverse and more secular. Um, the, the, the culture war that Republicans want the government to fight for them can't actually be won that way. And so there's this sense of, there's almost this, the sense of hopelessness increases, not just when they win and then government fails, but then when they lose after government fails to solve the problem that the state can't actually solve.
1: Well, Nora writes, if I, an average interested citizen, could see this coming not for months but for years, how could this have been allowed to take place? Now I'm reluctantly agreeing with friends online that the inauguration should not be a public event. Karen writes, I immediately thought the security situation was deliberate and there were multiple high-level security officials that intentionally created the situation so that the mob could get in. The fact that a crowd might march on the Capitol didn't surprise me, but I really never in my life or the history of the country expected there would be an organized coup that allowed them access. And, of course, Adam Serwer, as you pointed out, uh, incited by the president of the United States, a sitting president. You know, we just have 30 seconds left, but there is so much. I would just want to be yes, please, careful
6: right in ahead. saying that, that that this was organized from the inside. I don't think we know that. I think it's clear that the Capitol Police were unprepared, but I don't think we know that they deliberately um, aided whatever happened on Wednesday.
1: Yes. Thank you for the clarification. And, of course, mine was just in talking about specifically that a coup at all yes. happened. <laughs> um You know, again, we just have seconds, but so much is going back and forth between this is not America and that we are better than this. And I just want to ask you, are we better than this? You know, just leave us with your final thoughts right now.
6: The answer is we can be, but that's a choice. It's a choice that people have to consciously make. It's not something that just happens.
1: Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic. I encourage you to read his piece, The Capitol Riot Was an Attack on Multiracial Democracy. Thanks so much for your insights. Really appreciate them, Adam Serwer.
6: Thank you very much.
1: And thank you to Susan Britton for producing today's segment. Also really appreciate our listeners for sharing how you are grappling with all of this and the questions that remain for you as we continue to cover the events of last Wednesday and the fallout. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum.